Hey everyone, and welcome to the Flatlining Podcast, a podcast that brings you great healthcare analysis and discussion each week. Matthew Handley from Flatlining.net. With me is the president and CEO of Fulcrum Strategies and economist Ron Howergan. Ron, how are you? I am good, thank you. I hope you are as well. I am. It's uh, good to be back home after our, our uh, week in Vegas last week for the yes. conference, and but I'm glad we got to have at least uh, two programs that we recorded in person over the past couple of weeks. Uh, but we are virtual today, as you can probably tell, and that's quite all right. That's just the, the way of the world we live in now. Uh, we got a couple of things we want to talk about on the program today. A few weeks ago, we discussed uh, Mifepristone and uh, some lawsuits about the FDA, about whether or not they approved it properly, whether or not uh, it had too many uh, restrictions and regulations on it, and the overarching discussion about whether or not a federal judge can overrule uh, the FDA. We have some conversation today about some other uh, news with the FDA. That'll be coming up, plus uh, some money into COVID research and some new interesting things about the COVID-19 vaccines that are not conspiratorial, I promise. Uh, those are coming up in the second half of the program as well. But first, Ron, uh, you mentioned in our staff meeting uh, yesterday morning about uh, something regarding the Texas Medical Association lawsuits. And I, I know we were generally confident last week. Um, so why don't you share what you heard and whether or not we ought to be concerned? Yeah, so um, the most recent development is um, the federal government has a, a filed an appeal on TMA2 which is the, the lawsuit that we won, that the judge cited in favor of the plaintiffs. So now the federal government has moved that to the appellate court and is appealing that decision. Um, it would surprise me if the appellate court overrules the original judge. That seemed to be a pretty clear and easy decision because it was basically the judge saying, no, you have to follow the law. Mm -hmm. So that would be surprising. Now, if the appellate court upholds the judge, the federal court, federal government could always take it to the Supreme Court. The problem with all this is it's going to delay, you know, us sort of getting this law right. And it may be sending a signal that TMA3 and TMA4 will also be appealed if the federal government doesn't like the ruling there. So um, we're not out of the woods yet. Uh, I'm sort of reminded of the you know, the famous Winston Churchill quote, this is not the end, this is not the beginning of the end, but it may be the end of the beginning. Mm -hmm. You know, it's interesting, uh, when I was doing our show prep for today, I, I came across an, one or two opinion pieces that were basically saying exactly what we've been saying about the No Surprises Act all along. And I thought it was interesting that finally uh, some in, in the mainstream healthcare media were catching up to, to this particular issue, despite the fact we've been dealing it with with it for well over a year now. Uh, the federal government did not appeal TMA1, correct? Um, no, they didn't appeal TMA1. What happened with TMA1 is they lost, they came up with new guidance, which was what the court told them to do. The problem mm -hmm. was that guidance was exactly like the old guidance. Right. Um, and so TMA2 was really a second ruling on TMA1. And the judge made it very clear that he didn't want to see this again, that he'd already ruled on it once, he's now ruled on it twice you know, get your act together. And so now they've taken that to an appellate court. Yeah. And it's interesting, like what you said, it would be interesting to see what the appellate court does. I, I would also be skeptical that they overturn it just because the judge in this case didn't, he, I mean, he wasn't like he was making new law or striking down parts of the law. It's exactly what you said. He was, he's just saying, 
follow the law. <laughs> exactly. And and the good news is there's a fair amount of this law that is very detailed and prescriptive. Mm-hmm. So it's not even a gray area piece. And that's, you know, there was one of the comments the judge made in TMA2 where he said, you know, this is not ambiguous. Right. Um, the law is clear. Just do that. Mm-hmm. Um, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. But it's it's not over yet. Well, we'll keep you updated here on the Flatlining Podcast and at flatlining.net. So stay with us for more on the No Surprises Act and the Texas Medical Association lawsuits as they come through. Switching gears, our first topic I want to talk about this week, Ron, uh, has to do as a follow-up from our conversation about mifepristone and some of those uh, legal cases that were going against the FDA. Uh, In recent weeks, the Supreme Court has stepped in and has continued to make sure that mifepristone is still available. Um, And again, we're not commenting on the whether or not we think that that's ethical, you know, whatever. We're talking about the legal issue of whether or not a federal judge can overrule the FDA, either by blocking a drug from being on the market or by saying there needs to be less restrictions on a drug in the market. And one of the uh, interesting things, real clear, real clear politics, real clear health and, and real clear policy always interests me, Ron, because sometimes um, I wonder why they seem to turn around on themselves <laughs> so much. Yeah. Uh, in this particular uh, essay uh, published uh, in Real Clear Policy by David Williams, uh, who is a member, who's the president of the Taxpayers Protection Alliance. I uh, should tell you a little bit about his political leanings there. Uh, he wrote a column um, bemoaning that the FDA was about to make drug uh, approvals for cancers more difficult by putting some of these cancer drugs through more uh, stringent testing. Um, and first of all, one, I, I guess we'll step back a little bit and talk about that this is guidance. This isn't policy yet. But what kind of testing do cancer drugs currently go through and uh, and is it stringent enough already? Well, yeah, so it's it's an important question to understand, you know, what is the clinical trial testing look like for a drug in a perfect world? Mm-hmm. In a perfect world, what you would have is a large number of um, participants in a clinical trial where you could split them up into those receiving the drug and those receiving the placebo. And you get that sort of law of large numbers. If, if there's going to be a, a harmful side effect, you're going to see it when you do it with enough people. And with large numbers, you're going to be able to see the efficacy, the difference between the placebo drug and the non-placebo. That's perfect world. Some would argue, although some argue that it happened too quickly, but that's sort of what we had with the COVID vaccine. Large numbers of people um, where we could see both placebo and non-placebo and everybody sort of rushing to say, yeah, I'm, I'm part of this. Now, it, it rarely is a perfect world because in a lot of cases, what you're doing is you're dealing with sometimes with rarer diseases, you just don't have large numbers of people that you can put in there. You also have to struggle with this issue of, you know, am I harming the people in the placebo group? In other words, if these are life-threatening diseases, you want to err towards the side of giving help, but you still have to decide whether this drug is A, effective and B, safe. So, you know, that's sort of the struggle that the FDA, how many people are we going to go through with it? You know, what are we doing on a comparison basis? And in this case, what the FDA came out as guidance was they're starting to say it's probably not good to have really small data sets. Okay, Um, you need to have enough people in there for us to feel comfortable with the results. Uh, I'm reminded of my early statistics classes where 
you know, the professor said at one point, if you randomly measured two people in height and you created their average height, how, how sure are you that that's going to be reflective of the average height of a person in this country? Not very. Now, if you average, randomly test uh, the height of a million people, how sure are you that you've got the right average height for the country? Really, very sure. So they're bemoaning these sort of small data sets. And what they're also talking about is cross-trial comparisons to historical trials, where they're saying, look, well, in this old historic trial, we did this. Um, we think that's going to apply over in this situation. It's an inference. It's not as good as that perfect world. Um, and what they're really doing here, and sometimes I think the, you know, when you think about FDA trials, people get concerned that, well, they're saying you can't have this drug and, you know, compared to nothing, let's, why don't you let them try? Well, they're really not comparing it to nothing. Most of these drugs they're comparing to some current treatment or drug that's already been approved. So it's not as simple as just saying, well, let's give everybody this drug. What, what harm could it do? Well, it could do a lot of harm because if this drug is not as good as the previous treatment that's already been approved, we've done great harm to them. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the issue here is they're saying, hey, we should probably get bigger clinical trials and we probably shouldn't rely as much on these sort of cross um, treatment researches and historical treatments. We should really do it the right way. That being said, I think the FDA is a horrible job because how do you strike that balance between as much certainty as you can get that a drug is has efficacy and safety and wanting to get that drug in the hands of the people who need it as quickly as possible. That's a very difficult balance. And we've seen a number of situations, including the COVID vaccine, where people will argue it took too long and somebody else will argue it didn't take long enough. Mm -hmm. And somebody else will say, well, you waited too long to make sure it's safe. And somebody else will say, well, that's not enough people to guarantee it's safe. It's a damned if you do, damned if you don't environment. Right. And we're seeing that now uh, in this particular instance where uh, on the one hand, they're arguing that the, there's too many restrictions on trying to approve new cancer drugs. And uh, it, meanwhile, there's cases tied up in federal court about they didn't do enough to determine whether or not certain drugs were safe. Really quickly, back during the Trump administration, I'm recalling, and I don't remember if this ever became a law or if it was simply just an administration policy, but the Trump administration and I believe a few bipartisan members of Congress were, were interested in in you know, promoting the right to try. How does the right to try fall into these types of cancer treatments? Well, the, the right to try is a thing that on the surface of it sounds like it should be a no-brainer. I'm a patient with a, let's say, a, a disease that has a pretty bad prognosis, a fatal disease, and we think there's a drug who might help me. Well, why shouldn't I be allowed? It's my life. Why shouldn't I be allowed to try it? Um, and at that sort of simplistic view, boy, that's pretty simple, right? The problem is that scenario where the right to try really is my only option is a pretty rare and B, how do you guarantee that patient has as much information as they need to have and are truly making their own decision that it's not a physician saying, boy, you really want to try this, don't you? I really think this will help. And the reason why I say it's pretty rare, because most times what we're talking about, let's say cancer, for example, is not, well, we don't have anything except this drug might work. It's, hey, we've got what we've always been using, and we know how efficacy, what the efficacy of this is, and this drug might be better. So if you get everybody the right to try, 
you could end up, you know, if we find out that drug isn't better or actually could be harmful, you know, you're doing a fair amount of damage. So it, it's it's a more nuanced situation than that. And, mm-hmm. and that's why it sort of gets hung up in, you know, what are we doing here? Let's go back to what we were talking about with the approval process. Is it possible to have it, uh, in, in a sense, both ways? Can you be lenient on one type of drug and not lenient on another type of drug? Well, and, and it already is sort of set up that way. Because part of what the what the FDA looks at is risk versus benefit. Okay, if you were going to come out with a new uh, frontline antibiotic, okay, um, well, you better be really sure, and they're going to make sure you're really sure that it it has no harmful side effects because the benefits are pretty limited. We've got excellent antibiotics already out there. We're not having this problem of, you know, of of antibiotics not you know not having some tool in our tool chest so this thing better be really really safe now go to something much more extreme um something where the risk is we've got a we've got a fatal disease we really don't have very good tools in the tool chest um and this thing looks like it might be you know that that magic bullet that's going to give it a whole lot more leeway on getting it out for speed and not being as sure because you know, the risks and the benefits that balance. So the system's already set up to sort of take those things into account uh, based on what is the condition or disease that you're trying to solve and what's the risk of us not approving this drug compared to the risk of us approving it prematurely. Mm-hmm. Well, we'll have the link to the column uh, in the show notes at flatlining.net. Uh, and we'd invite you to share your opinion with us. You can leave it in the comments or mention it in our chat chat, available on flatlining.net or in the Substack app. Hi there. Thanks for checking out the Flatlining Podcast. If you like this program and the content you're listening to, do us and your fellow healthcare workers a favor. Subscribe to the show on this platform and share it with your friends. We're quickly growing thanks to you, and we want to help more and more physicians and practice managers Stay up to date on the most pressing issues in healthcare. So subscribe and share the program with your friends and colleagues. And if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, give us five stars and leave us a review. Thanks for listening. Ron, I want to switch gears a little bit and talk about COVID-19 because uh, as you wrote back in uh, 2022, I believe, we were in the end of the beginning then, and I think we're in the still in the beginning of the middle part of COVID-19 as we figure out just exactly what it has done uh, to our society, to our economy, and in particular to our healthcare system. And Stat News is has got a very, I thought, rather good lengthy piece on uh, the amount of spending the federal government has done studying long COVID. And we've talked about long COVID before, and it's how it, you know, some people, I think, might try to brush it off as, you know, people being lazy after COVID, you know, people being hypochondriacs. But they're really, long COVID does exist, and it, it can have a very detrimental effect on our economy uh, going forward. So I, I want to start there with, with why we should care about long COVID and how it might affect our economy. Well, we should care about long COVID because, first of all, we need to definitively answer the question, you know, what is long COVID? How prevalent is it? Mm-hmm. What can it do? What are the, you know, if if we've got this situation where um, we have a condition of COVID that has long effective uh, impacts on patients, 
We need to know that. Remember, COVID was a novel virus, so we're still learning about the virus itself. Now we're learning about sort of long-term influences. We also know that COVID is not going away. We're not going to beat this virus. Um, we're going to survive it long enough for it to mutate to the point where it's not as deadly as it was. And perhaps we're, we're, never perhaps we're get... close to being there. Yeah. yeah, and I think we are. I think we, we, I think we did a good job of surviving the most dangerous part of COVID. Um, but now, if the virus is always going to be there, we also need to know, will the not fatal version of the virus also cause long COVID? So it's, it's really trying to answer the questions, what is it? Um, is it always going to be here? What, how does it manifest itself? And one of the problems in sort of answering those questions is a lot of these conditions um, were things that were present before COVID. So we've, we've got to figure out, was this a cause and re- an effect relationship or, uh, you know, true, true and unrelated? Did somebody have developed fibromyalgia after getting COVID and it's not at all related to COVID or was it a, you know, uh, an actual direct relationship? Those are still pretty Mm -hmm. open questions right now. And if it is something that's directly related to COVID, that means that not only are the, you know, as you mentioned, you're going to have the exact number better than I would uh, from your speech last week. Uh, the, The number of people that are no longer in the workforce in part because they died from COVID, but now that number might be even greater because people you know, they may be on long-term disability or short-term disability exactly. because of long COVID. Exactly. I mean, the impact you could have on the economy of people that are on disability or their ongoing treatment for those things, um, it's important to understand. And for several reasons. One, let's say that we determined that there is long COVID, but, and I'm not saying this is the case, but let's say we got this kind of, but it no longer exists because once COVID got mutated to the point where it wasn't severe, it, it long COVID goes away. Okay, well, then we know that the, we don't have to worry about this long term. Mm-hmm. If the answer to that question is it will always be here, that any dose of COVID can give you long COVID, well, now we've got to worry about it. And then that will drive the decision about what do we do to either try to prevent it or treat it. Because if it's a condition that's going to solve itself because it no longer happens, we don't have to worry about it. If it isn't, then we do have to worry about it. The federal government, and in particular the NIH, has been researching long COVID, uh, as they should, I would argue. Uh, and status reporting that they've poured about a billion dollars into this particular research. Uh, they're a little bit more critical, though. They don't think that the federal government has much to show from its research into long COVID, either, uh, I, I suppose, on how to treat it, um, you know, the best ways, best ways to help people deal with it going forward. They, they think that the federal government is focused too much on uh, the high level of, you know, long COVID rather than treatments and fixing it. What do you think about stats reporting in this instance? So um, I think anytime you randomly want to criticize the federal government's approach to solving a problem, you've got a pretty decent chance that dart's going to hit the dartboard. Okay, I mean, <laughs> yeah, let's just—I would let's agree. Just, yep. You know, let's just go with with statistics and go. They don't have the world's best track record nope. of being incredibly accurate and efficient with things. So, I think there's probably a fair amount of fodder for um, criticism there um, that we don't have much to show for it. Now, the flip side of that is, and this is a scary thought: when you're doing research on some question or problem like this. Boy, a billion dollars didn't even start the engine. You know that that, that True. that's yeah. that that's not a significant amount of money to do that. You look back at how much 
money went into the research for things like HIV, mm-hmm. how much money had gone into the research for, you know, the technology that eventually developed the COVID vaccine. A billion dollars is budget dust, as scary as that sounds. So, um, yeah, do we have much to show for it? No. Do I think the government has done an amazing job at this research? Probably not. Now, do I think that it's all been for naught and we shouldn't be spending money on this? Absolutely not. I think we absolutely need to spend money on it mm-hmm. so that we understand it. And I would perhaps, to you know, be the devil's advocate here a little bit, would to say that perhaps not finding anything concrete yet is, in a sense, still progress because you're crossing off the things that, yeah. you know, might be, you know, that might not be correct. You know, finding an answer that is it's not that it still has value. I mean, there's, you know, we look we deal with this with our clients all the time where they, you know, they order an MRI to rule out a tumor. Mm-hmm. That's good news when it comes back fine. You don't yeah. want them all to be positive. Yeah. Okay, now I know it's not that. Now let me go to something else. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're right. If they're if they're coming up with well, it doesn't look like it's this and it doesn't look like it's that. That's still useful information. It's important to remember too that when we developed the COVID vaccines, granted there was a significant amount of funding from the federal government and that the federal government purchased all of the vaccines there for a while, uh, and, and helped fund a lot of the research. Um, so you could say that there, you know, you got a public private partnership there in, in some aspects. Do you think that the drug companies right now, big pharma, do you think that they're actively looking for a treatment for long COVID? Do you think that there's a market there for that, that they can maybe make money on? Um, not unless they find out that there is a way to prevent it. I don't think there's a market in it as much for the treatment because so far the, the manifestations of long COVID are conditions that are already present. It's not like there's this new, you know, I, I, you know, I had COVID and then I broke out in this new, you know, skin rash that we've never seen before. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, you know, it's things, and they're also things that are sort of difficult to deal with. You know, people report long COVID being things like I'm lethargic and have no energy. I have right. fibromyalgia. You know, now if they found that there's a specific thing um, that happens with COVID that can be treated that would get rid of all these, then there's a market for it. I don't see big pharma right now heavily involved in the long COVID market until they learn more about it. Plus, I would I would argue from a healthcare and and perhaps from a moral perspective too, it's the same reason that when all the people who were all mad about vaccines were constantly pointing to the treatments, and the rest of us were pointing back to the vaccines, said I'd rather be not get the disease than have to get treatment right. for the disease. Right. Exactly. We'll have the link to the stat article in our show notes for the program. I want to stay with COVID now, but switching gears to vaccines a little bit, uh, because we've, we've talked a lot about some of the, the wacko theories out there about COVID vaccines and vaccines in general. Uh, and one of the interesting things that I think has come up is one of the potential, quote unquote, adverse reactions to the COVID vaccines that was investigated by the CDC is uh, the people might develop tinnitus. And I did a little bit of reading into this, Ron, and and you can help me understand it a little better too, that tinnitus is not necessarily something that's totally out of the blue when it comes to talking about vaccines because it's been reported for other vaccines before as well. Um, But the CDC in this instance uh, decided, determined that there was no um, connection between the COVID-19 vaccines. Uh, talk a little bit about how they investigate those adverse reactions, just as a refresher for everyone. And then if you can, talk a little bit about tinnitus in particular. 
Yeah, so um, one of the things that you've got to be very careful about when people bring up these connections to the COVID vaccine and then these people report tonitis, et cetera, and we've talked about this in the year before, is you know, the whole true, true, and unrelated. Just because something happened right after something else didn't make it there's a causal relationship. So the, the thing I like to say about when everybody says, oh, well, you know, X percent of the people who got the vaccine suddenly developed tinnitus. Right. Well, you know what? There's also a strong correlation between the vaccine and pregnancy. There are a lot of people that right after they got the vaccine got pregnant. Well, that's because there are people who get pregnant all the time. Right. There are people who develop tinnitus all the time. There are people who develop other things all the time. That that coincidence that they happen close together doesn't mean causal. So, you know, it, it'd be ridiculous to say, I got the vaccine and I got pregnant. No, we know how you got pregnant. Okay. Right. It just happens to be that they happen fairly <laughs> yeah. close together. Okay. Yeah. Um so that's one of the one of the problems of it. Now, and I, I suffer from tinnitus because I have Meniere's disease, and it's it's a horrible thing. There's this constant screech in my left ear. Um, so what they did was they first of all, like they do with everything else, they said, okay, is there some sort of a of a correlation between the vaccine and onset of tinnitus? The next step is to say, is that frequency different than what the frequency we would see in the general population. So mm -hmm. I don't know the number of tinnitus, but let's say it's, you know, one out of every 100,000 people will develop it. Okay, well, if it's one out of every 100,000 people getting the vaccine, well, that's the normal you would expect. Now, if it's 20 out of 100,000, all right, now we think there's a problem because of that frequency going up. Then you got to move to the next thing. What about the vaccine, either biologically or, or um chemically or whatever, do we think could have an impact on tinnitus? And what are the root causes of tinnitus? What happens? You know, why does it happen, et cetera? Mm. Um, and basically what the research found uh, was, A, there was not an increased frequency in the development of tinnitus other than what we would normally expect. So it doesn't look like everybody got a COVID shot and then the frequency went way up. And there's nothing in the what the shot does that seems to have any logical connection to how people develop tinnitus. So that's why the CDC came out and said, no, there's no connection here. There, there's no, there's no smoking gun here. We've taken um, criticism of the vaccines a little bit with a grain of salt. And I think rightfully so um, because we have determined, and I think a lot of other people have determined that random person on the internet is not, an expert on vaccines and their criticism doesn't really matter. Uh, not saying that they don't have the right to express their criticism, but that it doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. And we've also um, tussled on social media with uh, even physicians who have had weird opinions about COVID and the healthcare world in general. I took note though, that in this NBC article about the story, uh, that a physician from the Mayo Clinic's vaccine research group uh, is cited in here, and he was frustrated with the CDC, I, I suppose, not publishing the research in the same way they published it about other COVID vaccines. And I only take note because it's the Mayo Clinic. It's not random doctor from, you know, Dubuque, Iowa somewhere. And I'm, I'm curious what you make of, of this particular physician's criticism um, that he thinks the CDC didn't do enough research and they didn't publish all the research. Well, and, and I think, I think that is valid criticism and, and, and not from the perspective of if anything, especially now we need more transparency, not less. 
Mm-hmm. And, you know, that means, and, and this is part of what happens in the scientific method, it's part of what happens with researchers. That's supposed to be made available. When you publish your information, you're supposed to publish all the data, you're supposed to, because what you're wanting to is to have a scenario where people say they can try to poke holes in it. And if they can't, then you know you're right. Right. And if you've done something wrong in the research or you missed something, you want somebody to find it. You don't want to have there be this false impression out there. So I think that was legitimate. I think the CDC, and I, I know they've been under incredible attack, and mm-hmm. it would be easy, especially around the vaccine, to just sort of curl up in your turtle shell and go, just go away. Okay. Right. Now, I, I don't personally, from what I've read, I don't think there's a connection between the vaccine and tinnitus. But I do agree that you need to make all that stuff transparent. And if you haven't done as rigorous a study as you otherwise should have, that's a legitimate criticism. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, turning the light on and having transparency will solve an awful lot of problems. And especially in this environment, even if you've done everything right, if you keep it in the dark, it just feeds the conspiracy theorists to go, oh, see, right. they're not telling us about this. Mm-hmm. And, and we just don't, we've got way too much of that to begin with. This NBC News article and uh, Becker's short summary of it as well will be in the show notes of the program. Ron, we're just about out of time. Thanks again for coming on the program. No problem. It's always good to do it. Next week on the Flatlining Podcast, we're talking to an ENT physician who has a terminal cancer diagnosis. He'll share his story and the hoops he's had to jump through to get his insurance carrier to pay for the treatment. The Flatlining Podcast is a production of Flatlining.net and Fulcrum Strategies. Copyright 2023, all rights reserved. Be sure to subscribe to the program on Spotify, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music, the iHeartRadio app, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Don't forget, you can engage with Ron and myself, plus other listeners of the program in our chat, now on the Substack app for Android and Apple, and at Flatlining.net. For Ron Howergan, I'm Matthew Hambly. Have a good week.